Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Uh, I always hate it when we come to the last uh, sermon in our series. And uh, today, today we're going we're gonna to finish up talking about um, the aspect of your soul, your mind, and then what do we do from here. And uh, as I was going through this, uh, this part, I, I realized that, um, that there, are, there are three things that tend to knock us off course. And they have to do with things that jar the heart. So uh, disappointments, uncertainties, expectations that are not met. These three things tend to take you to where you might be going really well in your faith and suddenly you just get jostled. So I thought as we are finishing up this series on Renovate the Heart, we'll talk about uh, over the first couple of weeks of... uh, like after Thanksgiving, then into December, we'll talk about this, this aspect of disappointments, expectations, and dealing with uncertainties. And uh, all, those, all those fit with Christmas, because Christmas is sometimes disappointing, sometimes it doesn't meet expectations, and uh, it can't have uncertainties. So uh, it's not really an Advent series, but I thought it would... Uh, Fit with the idea of heart. So when we finish with this, we're gonna we're just gonna look at a couple of things that that tend to hurt our hearts. But today, we really want to focus on uh, the soul and the mind, and then our way forward. So what I thought we'd do is, although this is so familiar, it's just great every now and then to read Psalm twenty-three. Just every now and then, just for our hearts the goodness of the Lord here in the land of the living. So will you read this psalm with me out loud? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Forever. <laughs> uh, why, don't we, why don't you turn to your neighbor, the one you can tolerate. Okay. <laughs> Trying to figure out which one that is. All right, so turn to your neighbor, and, and, and this is the blessing you're going to speak over them. Ready? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, and you shall dwell in the house of the Lord 
your whole life long. Now, that last verse that I had you say to each other, this, this has to be one of your default settings. Is that, that even though it seems like uh, the world with devils filled threatens to undo us, that's what Martin Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The, even though that is true, the goodness and mercy of God is pursuing you all the days of your life. And so we want to keep that in mind as we start to talk about the idea of the soul. Wow, that's small. I might have to pick this up, put my glasses on, just so I can see that. Sorry about that. I'm old. I can't see that kind of stuff. So I've been talking a lot to you about because I think it's important you understand your own complexity. And I've been talking to you a lot about what makes you human. And we've been talking about these, these elements of these aspects. So thought, feeling, choices, body, which interacts with the world, and then social interaction. Those are the, those are the five ways that you are specifically human. But all five of those come together in either what we would call our heart, or sometimes it's interchanged with soul. And so we want to talk a little bit about the fact that you and I have to, if we're going to be effective, we have to experience restoration of our souls, but we also have to begin to understand that without caring for our souls, our souls go back to old default settings. So... It's important that we understand that what's running your life, and this is Dallas Willard's words, what's running your life at any given moment is your soul, not external circumstances or thoughts or intentions or even your feelings, but your soul. So what's happening in your life is everything that's hitting you, everything that's happening to you is revealing, sometimes revealing what you don't want revealed, that you don't want to reveal that you need healing. You don't want it revealed how broken you are. You've done your very best to put yourself back together like Humpty Dumpty. And, and you've done everything you can to put a presentation that you think will be acceptable. But you see, one of the issues that once you become a Christian, you must deal with is you're now inhabited by the spirit of truth. So the spirit of truth knows where all your false places are. And so he knows exactly how to make, you know, situations happen that are going to bring out the stuff that needs healing, that needs repenting of, that needs some change. Now, I was uh, teaching on this one time, and, uh, you know, I, I like to say, you know, your children don't make you angry. They reveal that you have an anger, you know, issue. You have an angry situation. And uh, this mother came home, was yelling at her little girl, and she looked at her little girl and said, you, you drive me crazy. She said, I don't drive you crazy. Pastor Mike says you're already crazy. <laughs> so the mother hit her and me. <laughs> but there's some truth that even a child can understand that what's coming out of you is in you. 
And there are arrangements or curriculum of the Holy Spirit to sort of force you to see those things. And sometimes it's your marriage. Sometimes it's your children. Sometimes it's your parents. Sometimes it's your work. I mean, many of us don't realize God had to give you that irritating, annoying boss so you would never see yourself as you actually are. And so we have a false sense of self, but now we are living with the truth and the spirit of truth, and he will not allow us to continue to present our false sense of self. So the soul is this aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of who you are. The soul is the life center of the human being. It regulates whatever is occurring in each of those dimensions and how they interact with each other. And it's the soul that responds to all the events, and and the soul is what's governing your whole life. One person said this, your soul is the essence of your personality. And so many of us have really neglected our souls and as we have neglected our heart. The soul is, is deep in the sense of being basic and foundational, also in the sense that it, it almost totally applies beyond conscious awareness. Now, that, this is where the problem comes, is that oftentimes we will know everybody else's soul, but we won't know ours. Because we spent our whole lives figuring out other people and how to interact with those other people, but we haven't really said, what is my soul? Okay. And, and it's pretty fascinating. And you can be a pretty well-educated person and still be very unconscious in terms of your own soul. And, and, and many, of us who are, many of us who are intuitive have spent a lot of time figuring out how to survive and how to navigate but at the same time, we haven't really learned, well, what, what is my heart? What is my soul? What, what is fundamental about me? Uh, Lisa hates it when I tell this, and she's not here, so she can't get me. Uh, she is. <laughs> probably not. Uh, what, what, what she said to me as a young husband who's, who would say, are you, are you angry? Are you, are you mad? Are you upset? Are you disappointed? She hated those questions. And uh, one time I said, do you need something? She says, I don't know what I need, but you ought to know. And I went, oh boy, I'm in trouble. I'm really in trouble. You know, and and uh, I've talked to many people in, in marriage counseling, and they'll say something like this. If I have to tell him what to do, it doesn't count. That's an unconscious soul right there. You see, none of, us, none of us can know intuitively what other people need if they don't know what they need. Because you cannot, you cannot live in darkness and walk in the light. And so when you are operating unconsciously, you're operating in the dark. And guess who dwells in the dark? And, and this, is one of the, this is one of the hardest things to get people to really own up to is you alone have to decide what you want. And it can't just be, well, you know, I want what you want. 
I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever gone to dinner with someone who doesn't know what they want, but they know they don't want what you want. Hey, let's go to, okay. Hey, let's go to this place. Nah, not there. Pick somewhere. I'll go anywhere. Well, let's go here. No, we're not going to go there. I don't like that place. You understand what I'm saying? Many of us have very rigid souls, but we do not express or understand what has gone underground and unconscious. And you see, here's the problem. The enemy knows you well. He's watched every generation of your ancestors. He knows every weakness in your family. He knows every secret. There isn't a secret that the enemy of your soul doesn't know about your family. And so he knows the vulnerable places. And that's why, that's why in so many ways you may, we're not there as a church, but over these almost 20 years that I've been here, I've been saying we have to be messy church. Because if, if, if you and I keep secrets, those are the places the enemy exploits. I think my friend Paul says, you're only as sick as your secrets, right? And so many of us don't realize that scars become beautiful in the grace of God. The most broken places become the strongest places in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But they will not do so if you're not honest. And if you keep all of it hidden. So... Again, I like what Dallas Willard says. In the person with a well-kept heart, the soul will be itself properly ordered under God and in harmony with, with reality. I know this, this, these are loaded uh, sentences, but this is so important. I have met people who thought they were properly under, ordered under God, but they were not in touch with reality. So they weren't actually properly ordered under God. They were delusional. Because if, you're, if your life with God isn't a life-touching reality, it's not a life with God. Amen. It's a false God, and it's a false faith. See, the outcome will be, in this ordered life, a person who's prepared for and capable of responding to the situations in life in ways that are good and right. This is, this is why I really wanted to go through this whole series with you is there are so many things that are unpredictable in life. There are so many things that come that are bigger and harder and much longer than we expect. I mean, I've often said, if I just knew how long this suffering would last, I could handle it. But often when something begins, you don't know what the ending's gonna be or how long it's gonna be until it ends. Now, I absolutely believe with all my heart that the, that the cycle spiritually in our lives is, is the same as Jesus. Uh, you know, he was rejected, he was slain, and on the third day he was resurrected. Now, but that's the perfect Lord Jesus Christ who was fulfilling the, the perfect role of Savior. And, and what you and I find, if, if, you, if you look, when, when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on a place that needs healing, He's showing you something that needs to be rejected, but it needs to be rejected by you. Then he's showing you a place that needs to be crucified, slain. 
But then you have to believe that as that process of rejection and dying to self and being crucified, even crucifying your passions and your worldly desires and your over-desires, even as that is happening, that it takes time. But that the end result of every crucifixion in your life is resurrection. Resurrection to newness of life. But what often happens is we don't reject, we resist. And instead of crucifying, we justify. And we make excuses. And, then, and, and, and part of that we're going to talk about a little bit is about the way our minds need to be renewed. So the soul is the place where right now the Holy Spirit is working and he's working to bring you to resurrection life. But he's also showing you there are places where you're saying, I don't want to reject that. I resist you here. I don't want to die to self there. This is something that gives me life. This is something that makes me feel alive. Why would you take this from me? So we are coming to a place more and more where the Spirit's going to say to you, are you willing to have an ordered heart? Because every place that you see the sin in your life is a place where you're showing, I have a disordered heart in that place. So such a person with a well-kept heart, the human spirit will be kept in correct relationship with God. With God's assisting grace, it will bring the soul into subjection to God and the mind, your thoughts, feelings, into subjection to the soul. Then the way you interact with others, the way your body responds will all come into subjection to thoughts and feelings that are in agreement with truth, with God's intent and purposes for us. Now, all of that, that means, that means that the Holy Spirit is looking at how your thoughts interact with your feelings, how your feelings and thoughts interact with your choices, how all of that is responding, your, your body's responding to and then how you're actually acting and reacting to other people. And all of that comes from the place of your soul. And so the Spirit's getting at the foundational stuff, not just, not just the surfacey stuff. I, I, I don't know how many of you grew up in church, but I grew up in a very legalistic-oriented church. Everything was about behavior. Nothing was about the heart. And so people at church came in and behaved, but then during the week they didn't behave. Then the pastor would be upset with the people, so he'd yell at them a lot. And, he, and, and basically he was saying stuff like this, God is disappointed in you. You know, you're not living, you know, you're not living up to the glory of God. And there would be a huge guilt trip on the people. And, and the interesting thing is, I have never yet seen people healed by scolding. I'm not saying they're in a place for scolding. But generally speaking, scolding only shows you the bad, never gives you promise for the good. It just makes you hide what they're scolding. And so I grew up in a church where the, the pastor was having affairs. I grew up in a church where the people were greedy, racist, where they were classist. They were all kinds of stuff. But, but you know, they, they supposedly didn't lie or cheat or do all of these other things, at least not at church, anyway. What does this psalm say, though? 
The psalm doesn't say he, he chastises your behavior. It says he restores your soul. So I want you to, are you tracking with me this morning? Will you turn to your neighbor and say, he restores your soul? And then say, and you need it? <laughs> you guys enjoyed that part too much. So think about this with me. The whole of the Bible from beginning to end is basically the human deliverance of the soul. Of coming from not being a people who have a relationship with God to a people who are established in a personal relationship with God by God's grace and his power. Now, here's the thing, though. If you're going to really understand how to live in his grace and his power, if you're going to learn how to live in personal relationship with him, you're going to have to understand the place that the law and the word of God has in relationship. Now, now here, this is, this is in so many ways an important thing for relationship. Everybody has a way that they feel loved and a way they don't feel loved. Now, I, I, I think it would actually be great that every couple getting married would then give their partner the Ten Commandments of loving me. You shall have no other husband but me. You know, you shall not make anything else in my place and only I should be in my place kind of a thing. Because what happens is most of us, we have these laws of relationship, but we don't tell each other what the laws are. So uh, the only way we find out the laws is when we violate them. Why are you so angry with me? Well, you should know. What is it you want me to do for you? I'm not going to tell you. You figure it out. That's pretty much what we do to each other. And when somebody violates the law of relationship that we have, we either let them have it or we leave them. So why did God give the Ten Commandments? He did the Ten Commandments because he's a good husband. He gave the Ten Commandments because he's a good father. And because he said, okay, you're not God, I am. And here's what happens if you want to stay close to me. And so, so when you begin to realize that the, that the law of God was not a perform to get acceptance, but it's actually a revelation of the very heart of God so you can stay close to his heart. Yes. It is not you going, okay, I'm going to do these 10 things so that he will accept me. No, that'll never work. Rather, it's saying, I have been accepted. Now, how do I love on him? How do I live with him? How do I stay close to him? And so, see, at, at every point, no matter how old you get, your own inadequacy in terms of your effort has to, got to be acknowledged. I, I hate sometimes how clear life makes it that I'm still broken. I hate sometimes how life still makes so clear that there are these wounded places inside of me that only with certain pressures do they come up and come out. And yet, what I have to realize is that will be true 
until I go home to be with the Lord. Now, Pharaoh did something a little while ago that was interesting. He said, he said, look up into the face of God. And see, what we're going to be, what we're talking about today is your very vision of God. And, and what, ha, what is it that has, that has informed your vision of God? For so many years, my vision of God was a disappointed God. My vision of God was an angry God. So I wouldn't look at him because I knew how evil and broken I was. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are certain bathrooms you go in, you don't want to look in the mirror because the fluorescent lights do not do you justice. And then there are certain places you go into and it has the perfect light and you're like, I'm not so bad after all, you know? I don't look so bad. Well, if you get into the light of God's holiness, there is nothing hidden. And so what God has done is he has made an unconditional meeting place for you in which you are in the light of Jesus's righteousness, not your own. And as you come into that meeting place with God, then you can not to get acceptance, but because you are acceptance, accepted, then you can with a sense to your heart say, I want to follow you. I want to love you. I want to, I want to walk in your ways. You see that with the psalm a lot, psalms a lot, where you know, the, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so what, what we begin to say is, I cannot have my, my soul restored without an allegiance to and an alliance with the word of God. See, he restores my soul. And it's, it, it's interesting that, that one of the Psalms of David, he says, the law of the Lord converts the soul. So the, the whole idea of soul care is not, just, it's not just having nice thoughts about your soul. It's actually about reordering your soul in alignment with God's word. And as the soul aligns with God's word, in any place the soul is unwilling to align with God's word as, as your rule of life, that place is where you're disordered. That's the place where you're still saying, I can live apart from God here. But when you come into alignment and say, word of God, convert my soul. Word of God, restore my soul. Then the, then the word, which is anointed and illuminated by the Holy Spirit, becomes a living principle, not just a dead rule. And it quickens and it restores the connection. And in so many ways, what I see is there are people who are willing to have a close kind of emotional connection with the Holy Spirit, but unwilling to have the word that the Holy Spirit quickens. Because without the word, our deceitful hearts will think our adrenaline is the Holy Spirit and lead us off into bad directions. There are so many questions that are already answered. For example, <laughs> if it says 366 times to not be afraid, do you think it's got a point? Should I be afraid right now? No. I said it 366 times. 
one for every day, one for leap year. And yet, which is probably the thing we violate more than anything else? Decisions by fear. Which means there's a disorder in us that would rather fear as a power source than faith. There's a power source in us that says, I trust my fears more than I trust love. But you see, that's, that's us staying unconscious so we can keep an old power source. You see, fear is an exit plan. It's so that if it gets too tough, I can always leave. If it gets too tough, I can go my own way. Fear lurks. Even when you say, I'm not going to be afraid, fear lurks and says, I've got, I've got to protect me and I've got to provide for me. And so we begin to see that the heart aligns, the soul aligns with whatever we trust. And if we trust the word of God, our whole life will be different. But part of that is that whether we like it or not, our souls are filled with pride. Uh, one of my definitions of pride is simply this. We are people who are glory hungry, but we are also people who are glory empty. Being glory empty means that our hunger will latch onto anything that we think will bring us glory. And so that could be fame, it could be, it could be fortune, it could be relationships, it could be success in our jobs or any other thing. And so when God comes in, he says, I want you to sever all the connections, even to good things, that you have made ultimate things. I will not allow anything else to have my place in your life. So you see, when God does that, he's basically offending your human pride. Because he's saying, I will not tolerate idols. I will not tolerate competitors. And so <laughs> you and I, sometimes it's very hard for us to realize, but we will most fully live out our destiny and purpose when we live in humility before God and his word. God gives grace as we yield to his spirit to the humble but resist the proud. Look at these different verses. Here's the will of God for you. Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble, but he knows the haughty from a distance. I, I love that reaction. That is, a, that is the right reaction, Linda. Because many of us don't realize we have pushed God away. He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. A person's pride will humble him, but a humble spirit will gain honor. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, can I, I just want to give you a tip on this. The first thing that you can tell a person is prideful is when they say that they're humble. Have you ever noticed when someone says, in all humility, nothing that follows is humble? We are easily deceived when it, comes to when it comes to humility and pride. One of the best ways to understand humility is this. It's radical honesty about where you're broken. 
The more you hide, the more you have pride. I didn't know that was going to rhyme, but it did. (laughs) Would you realize that? The more you hide, the more you're showing how much pride you have. Because here's what the the word of God says, is that, that God delights, delights, not just that he tolerates, but he delights in truth, in the inner person. So even if that truth is that you don't trust God, or the truth is you're struggling in this area, or the truth is you're trapped in a sin in this area, if you're telling the truth, you're on the first step to him restoring your soul. And so being messy, being truthful, is how you get to resurrection life. You, you see, when you dress something up and you make it sound pretty and you give all the reasons why it is what it is, when you do that, you're not crucifying it. You're actually protecting it. And what you protect, you will nourish. And what you nourish will control you. So Pastor Tony Evans said this, God is not stuttered regarding how he views pride. There should be no ambiguity on how we interpret his word on this subject and concerning this specific idol. Most people do not view independence or pride as an idol, but it is. In fact, it's one of the main idols we are tempted to serve. There are no exceptions. We have all bowed down to this idol at one time or another. Sure, some may have bowed down, bowed in at different levels or to different degrees, but we have all worshiped the idol of self-sufficiency, independence, and pride. He goes on and he says, if God is running the universe and has first claim on our lives, guess who isn't running the universe and does not get to have things as they please? For the person who does not live honestly and interactively with God, the body becomes the primary area of pleasure and the primary source of terror, torture, and death. See, this has been so important in this, this, this series and study we've been doing is of all the things that should be running your life, your body is probably not the one. And many of us run our whole lives on what gives us pleasure, what avoids pain, on, uh, you know, in many ways, our body's appetites dictate, our overdrives come from our body. Um, I mean, think about the things that have trapped you in the past it was usually a physical thing that gave you an overriding sense of pleasure, and you keep trying to get back to it. I, I saw a study one time on cocaine, and it said it released, in the first time you ever uh, experienced cocaine, it released over 80% of your pleasure hormones. And, and then every time after that, even though it would fool your brain some, it could never get back to the 80%. So you had to do more and more and more because your body now wants that experience. And so that I, I find that that's not just true of cocaine. I think that's true of pornography. I think it's true of all kinds of things where the body can be tricked for a moment. But that tricking leads to bondage, leads to addiction, leads to all kinds of things. And the end result of, of living by your body, Paul says, is death. Death to your soul, death to your senses, 
So here's uh, Dallas Willard on that. Are, are you guys with me a little bit? Yes. So Dallas Willard says it this way. Free love as it is euphemistically. I like that word. Uh, <laughs> euphemistically but falsely called along with the various forms of perversion is an extension of body worship. But sensuality cannot be satisfied. That is partly because the effect of engaging in the practices of sensuality is to deaden feeling, which awakens the desperate need simply to feel, to feel something. We have to have feeling, and it needs to be deep and sustained. But if we're not living the great drama of goodness in God's kingdom, sensuality through the body is all that is left. The drive for self-gratification opens us up to a life where nothing is forbidden. One can do whatever one can get away with. Why is replaced with why not? And because this is what these gods want, total license, God abandons them to a worthless mind. This is not a new thing, friends. If you go back and you look at the prophet Jeremiah, he... He is given the burden of bringing the people back to God. And you know what he says to them? You're like donkeys in heat. That's not exactly a very you know, flattering uh, imagery there. He says you have, the, you have the passion like a donkey in heat, like an animal. And he says you, you will satisfy that, but you'll satisfy it with your idolatry, which will never satisfy you. And so that's what Dallas Willard is also saying, is that we're living in a day and age where people have to, have to feel deeply, but what they're doing doesn't make them feel deeply. And so they long for more and more feeling. And you and I are being bombarded with that without necessarily letting it come to us through the grid of the spirit of truth, and we get caught up in it as well. So... I don't have a lot of time left, but I want to talk about your mind for a minute. So God wants to restore your soul, but I have found that where, he, where the Spirit mostly begins to make the change is he makes the change about your mind. That it starts with the way you believe and the way you think. So again, this is Alice where he says, as we first turned away from God and our thoughts, so it is in our thoughts that the first movements towards the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. There the light of God first begins to move upon us through the word of Christ. And there the divine spirit begins to direct our will to more and more thoughts that can provide the basis for realign ourselves with God and his way. The ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell upon. Take just a minute. Turn to your neighbor again. Look at him and say this. Your ultimate freedom, your ultimate freedom is the power you have, power you have to, select to select what you allow or what you require, what you require your, mind your mind to dwell upon. I mean, a lot of us don't realize we, are, we have this incredible freedom to say, this is what my mind will dwell on. This is what I can require my mind to dwell upon. My mind is not in control of me. I'm in control of my mind. Now, we're not totally free, but we have tremendous freedom here. 
And even though you, somebody today, you might not be a believer, and you might be what Paul says, dead in your trespasses and sin, you still have ability and responsibility to try to retain God in your knowledge, even if it's inadequate. You know, in some ways, what's happening is in our society is the restraints are being thrown off. And what, what had happened is even though people aren't Christians, they still had the restraint of, of the law of God and saying, oh, this is a moral law that we should all live by. Now, living by the moral law doesn't make you right with God. It just makes society better. Okay? Living by the law of God doesn't make you a Christian. But it does make us treat each other a little better. When, when you actually do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's a, it's a better society. But it doesn't make you right with God. And so our job has never been simply to make our society better. It's to make dead men alive. So as we begin to turn our hearts and, and, and minds and say, I will think towards the things of God, we can make progress towards that. And, and, and <laughs> I like this part. I know I'm running out of time now. I've got to hurry. It's because of this fact that we remain responsible before God even when people were spiritually dead. Every person is responsible for their thoughts, in other words. So let's, let's just do a little bit of a dive on what are thoughts. By thoughts, we mean all of the ways in which we are conscious of things. That includes our memories, our perceptions, our beliefs, as well as what we would ordinarily refer to when we say, I thought of you yesterday. I was just thinking of our meeting tomorrow. Now, clearly our thoughts are one of the most basic sources of our lives. They determine the orientation of everything we do and evoke the feelings that frame our world and motivate our actions. Interestingly, you cannot evoke thoughts by feeling a certain way, but you can evoke and to some degree control feelings by directing your thoughts. Think about that with me. That's a really important thing. People always say to me, I want to change the way I feel. And I always say, first change the way you think and your feelings will follow. If what you're thinking is wrong, then what you feel will not be real. But if what you're thinking is the truth, then the healing will follow in your feelings. So, and I can't say that again. I said it so well, but... Our power over our thoughts is of great and indispensable assistance in directing and controlling our feelings, which themselves are not directly under the guidance of our will. We cannot just choose our feelings. Now, here's what I want to jump to, okay? You understand, when I'm telling you this stuff, I'm trying to get you to see that your thoughts are a lot bigger than you think. That it is not just your left hemisphere of your brain. It's not just your analysis. Your thoughts and your feelings are always, always connected. You never have a feeling that didn't come from a thought. And you never have a thought that doesn't produce a feeling. And then all of that, all of that has tremendous control over your choices. So one, one writer said it this way, the battle is for your thought life. Who is it that you direct your thoughts to? Now, what I'm suggesting, and Pharaoh went this way, we didn't even talk about this. He went this way that the first thing that your thought life has to have is a vision. Right. 
And the thoughts of God become the vision of, your, of the framework of your mind. So to bring the mind to dwell intelligently upon God as he is presented in his word will have the effect of causing us to love God passionately. And this love will in turn bring us to think of God steadily. Thus he will always be before our minds. That's why when Pharaoh said, he looks out the window and he sees the smiling face of God, if that's your vision, you don't mind looking out the window. But if you look out the window and see the scowling face of God and thinks he wants, think that he wants to curse you or he's disappointed in you or he's angry with you, then you're not going to look out that window very often. Except them when you want to be punished. And, and so... What's so important is to get that we have to have this vision in order for our thoughts to be, begin to be filled with passion for God. There's a great book called Your God is Too Small. It was very, very formative in my college days. And the interesting th thought, though, is the point of this book is not your God is too small to meet your needs. That's what a lot of people, when they see that title, yeah, you know, my God is, is big enough to meet all my needs. No. The, Philip's book is about this. Your God is so small that you can fail to relentlessly worship and adore him. You see, in the renovated mind, God constantly stands as uniquely and supremely worthy. Jesus said it this way, hallowed be thy name. A.W. Tozer, we're in an Alliance church, you got to quote Tozer every now and then. So A.W. Tozer, it is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. See, absolutely nothing can inform God and sustain radical and radiant goodness in the human being other than this true vision of God and the worship based thereon. Now, that's not good, is it? All right, so here's what I'd like you to the way forward then. There's a structure to your thoughts. All right, so you need vision, you need intention, and you need means. What I've been talking about so far is if you structure your, your thoughts with a true vision of God, then it can inform now what will be the intent of my thoughts, and it will also cause you to pursue means that will... Keep, keep on enlarging your vision, enhancing that vision. So in terms of intention, the intention to be formed, we've been talking about spiritual formation, the intention to be formed is to have the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ a constant presence in our minds, crowding out every false idea or destructive image, all misinformation about God and every crooked inference or belief Thus, it is the intention to use divinely powerful weapons for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, let me give you a, a really practical way that this works. If my vision of God is that he is all that I need, that he's big enough to handle any situation that I come to. If that's truly my vision, then what'll happen is that when things come that, that 
rock my world or make me feel inadequate or make me feel like I'm, I'm losing my mind or whatever it might be. When those things come, I will, I will drill down on this intent. This is coming to make me more like Jesus. But see, if my vision of God is too small and my intention is too small in regards to heart and spirit formation, then all I'm going to be interested in is how do I soothe myself when I'm in pain? Because then my intent isn't to be formed. My intent is to deaden. And you see, God is not the deadener of our pain. He's the healer of our pain. And he makes us go through it, not around it. And so if the idea is to go around it, then I got to grab a bottle. Or I got to shoot a needle. I've got I to find something that deadens it because I don't want to feel it. So the question of intent is essential in terms of will I renew my mind or will I go back to the old ways? Because either the issue is I am being formed into Christ's likeness or I'm being deadened so I don't feel it. You tracking with me on that? So then there has to be means... You see, there are means to soothe yourself. There are means to distract and deaden yourself. There are all kinds of means. But then if I'm going to be spiritually formed and my intent is to be Christ-like, then the means I reach for are different. See, uh, this is somewhat of complex thought, and I have just a couple of minutes to share it with you. We cannot transform our ideas and images or even the image we have our thought processes into Christ-likeness by direct effort. But we can do things, adopt certain practices that indirectly will increasingly have that effect. Let me explain to you what that means. Like right now, right now, I, I just, I know that I need to lose weight because my heart, my blood pressure medicine is, is kind of making me not want to lose weight. It's making me want to eat a whole lot. And it's also kind of making me feel bloated and stuff. And so I don't, I don't feel my best this morning. I don't feel my physical best. And so if I just suddenly go, weight be lost. Stomach be gone. See, that's direct action. But guess what? Nothing happened. Same weight. Same stomach. See, when it comes to Christ-likeness, you can't just go, Christ-likeness. When's it happening? When's it happening? No, what, what, what's being said here is the means are indirect. In other words, if I want to lose weight, it's indirect, not direct. If I want to lose weight, I have to eat less. If I want to lose weight, I have to drink more water. I have to do this or I have to do that. Those are the means, but they're all indirect. In the same way, if we want true Christ-likeness of a restored soul and a renewed mind, the means we grab have to be indirect. It's our prayer life. And, and one of the things that I think is really important for you and I to remember is it isn't just reading the Bible 
that brings Christ-likeness. It's understanding the Bible. It's applying the Bible. So therefore, it's okay that you use other people's words, you use sermons, you use studies, you listen to things, and, 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 and keep yourself in touch with understanding the Bible so that you can apply the Bible. As a matter of fact, don't just pull out verses. Listen to whole passages of Scripture. Do you know why we went through the whole book of Galatians? Is because the gospel changes everything, but you have to have the bigger picture. I'm calling you. Are you hearing me today? I'm calling you into Christ's likeness because that's where you'll find your purpose. That's where your heart will be satisfied. That's where your heart will be cultivated, ordered, and right where it needs to be. But you can't get there by deadening your heart. And you can't get there by saying, you know, heart be aligned. You have to grab the means that God has given to you. And you need to be consistent and you need to be growing in that. And whatever way that helps you to grow, grab hold of it and do it again and again and again. God bless you. Will you stand with me as we close this morning? I just got this picture of that verse that we started this sermon with. And if you would just close your eyes for a moment and just see... Jesus is the good shepherd with his rod and his staff, not to shame you, not to harm you, but to comfort you and to pull you close. And so Lord, even for myself, I grab hold of this image of your love, of you as my good shepherd who leads me and guides me. That even when, not if, but when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so, Lord, I replace the thoughts of being unloved or unworthy or not enough with you as the good shepherd. Father, I thank you that you have given us this picture. And that even beyond that, even beyond replacing the negative thoughts with this image, that then you remind us that your goodness and your mercy, they follow after us. So church, would you just grab hold of that picture this morning and let it grab hold of your thought life. Let it be the starting point to renewing the mind and becoming more and more like Christ as you see his rod and his staff pull you closer to him. Father, we thank you. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. We thank you for being the good shepherd. It's in your son's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.